Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is physical therapist, Dr. Matt Costuro, founder of The Movement System. Matt is here to teach us all about plyometrics for endurance runners, a little bit of Plyo 101. If you are familiar with Plyo or you're newly introduced to Plyo or you think that all plyometrics involve doing like crazy box jumps at the gym, no, we're going to talk about what plyometrics are, if, how, when you should include them in your training and what benefit you are getting from them. So please welcome my guest, Dr. Matt Costuro. Dr. Matt Castero, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. So before we get started, let's introduce our listeners to you. Uh, tell us about yourself. What's your athletic background and how did you become the guy behind the movement system? Yeah, good question. So um, I guess I got into fitness actually through running initially, and um, that was largely to condition for other sports like soccer. So my two sports, at least in high school, were soccer and cross country. And I, I ran, um, you know, competitively through college, but not at college, more just like recreational triathlons. But I tried to stay competitive and, and I just like enjoy being a competitive person. So I even took my intramural sports at college seriously and, and wanted to be well conditioned for that. So I've, uh, you know, always enjoyed running and um, that's been like a cornerstone of fitness for me. But I've also gotten into a ton of other training. Uh, I've actually had a lot of good mentors along the way as I was going through my exercise science degree at Ohio State and then continuing on to my physical therapy degree, I met a ton of great people and mentors along the way and and learned from a bunch of different training styles. So I still run a lot now, but um, I'm actually into gravel racing currently and and doing that next. So we could talk about gravel gravel bike racing a little bit if you want to, but um, yeah, like I've just always been interested in in different types of training to support sport and to learn from uh, and help others as well. There's actually, there's a, a unique subset of runners who are also into gravel racing. Like it's come up enough in the runners I've talked to who are like, oh, I also do this. I'm like, really? <laughs> but I guess if you have experience in triathlons, doing any sort of bike related uh, sport is obviously not too far off the mark. Yeah. I mean, actually, this is interesting. We could talk about like central versus like uh, peripheral adaptations or like specific training. Um, in some ways, like riding a bike is is kind of like um, like if you if you sing and you practice by playing the violin, it's it's kind of different. Like there's going to be a little bit of carryover, but not quite as much as people think. Like you really have to run if you want to get better at running, and you really have to ride your bike if you want to get better at riding your bike. That's actually something I talk about a lot. For I don't I didn't realize as a running coach, I'd have to convince people they need to run to become better at running. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I get this question. This is we're already on a tangent. Don't worry, people. This is normal. Um, that you know, for a lot of people, we talk about the development of endurance and spending a lot of time below that aerobic threshold. For the average person, that is going to be an extraordinarily slow pace and may involve walking. And so the question I often get on the back of this is, well, can't I do that kind of, of aerobic development work 
on the bike or in the pool or on the rower or and I'm like, well, it will help. But if you want to get better at running, you you have to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we can get kind of, yes, there are exceptions. And if you're doing triathlon, like, yeah, you're not going to be running nearly as much for your marathon and your triathlon as you would be just for standalone marathon. Like, yes, there are all these kind of like the spectrum of how one trains. But yeah, if we're training to get better at a specific sport, we have to do that sport or things that look very much like that sport in order to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Which I think brings us into our conversation, which is plyometrics. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So um, I get obviously a whole crap ton of questions about a bunch of topics. And whenever it reaches critical mass, as in more than three people have specifically reached out to me and asked me about something that I've not yet covered. And I think, okay, maybe there are more people who want to learn specifically about this. And plyometrics is one of those topics. Um, let's start at the very basic beginning foundational knowledge of what are plyometrics? Okay. So plyometrics are basically activities that would involve what we call the stretch shortening cycle. Um, to some extent, running is kind of a plyometric because as we run, um, we're going to be stretching and shortening our muscles and our tendons as well. And we could talk about the adaptations of one versus the other. Now, we often see plyometrics as these like intense jumping exercises, like our box jumps and our depth jumps where you're stepping off of blocks and landing and you're jumping and there's a lot of impact and ground reaction forces. But there's a whole spectrum of plyometrics and running is kind of somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Like we could have a really intense plyometric, like a depth jump where we're, you know, on a, on a tall box and we're stepping off and we have to absorb all that body weight and then we have to explode back up off the ground. It's a big change in momentum. Um, or we could have something very low level where we're actually doing assisted jumps where we're like holding onto a band and it's helping us jump with less than body weight. And that's something that we see implemented for performance for athletes who really want those very quick neuromuscular adaptations or in a rehab context for someone who's coming back from an injury with their Achilles or a knee or something like that. So there's this whole spectrum of plyometrics and depending on really seasonality of where you're at with your running right now, are you, if if you're running a ton right now, you're running 70 miles a week and your race is next week, you may not need any plyometrics in your training, right? Like that might be the thing that pushes you overboard. So if you're listening to this podcast and, and only get out from this, that I need to do a ton of plyometrics, be careful because there's times when you want to put on the gas and that plyometrics can be incredibly beneficial and improve your running economy and improve your um, tendon elasticity and a lot of the properties that we're going to talk about. But there's other times throughout the year where um, it's not going to be as big of a priority for you. I sometimes see this from runners who are coming from a very distance oriented space at distance. I mean, like, you know, multi-hour races that, oh, I don't need plyo uh, because I'm not a sprinter, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, only sprinters need the type of plyometric training uh, that we're, you know, you typically see, like, I don't need that. I get plenty of regular stuff in my training. Um, but like you said, it sounds like there's a spectrum and obviously not every exercise or movement pattern is going to be appropriate for every person, but that's simply not true. Plyometrics have a place in almost anybody's training as long as it's done appropriately, it sounds like. Yeah. So, I mean, like you could think of this from a perspective of just like like a t- like a pie chart and like how much of your time is going to be distributed to running versus plyometrics for a sprinter they actually may distribute a larger percentage of their training to plyometrics because you can only sprint at really high speeds so much because the, there's a certain risk to running really really fast really often i mean they still do as sprinters train that way but um, you can also introduce 
plyometrics to kind of decrease that risk a little bit as a sprinter. Now for runners, um, again, this will depend on seasonality. So there's there may be some times of the year where you're running a ton and doing very little plyometrics. Um, there may be other times of the year where you're dialing back your running and increasing your plyometrics. And it's important, again, to think about the plyometrics themselves can change drastically from what a sprinter would do, a basketball player would do, versus a distance runner would do. And this is why you can't just Google um, plyometric exercises and expect to have a, a good, well-laid-out routine for you because th those are just general exercises. And it's not um, obvious where those are going to fit into your training program. So you really need to dial back um, the intensity and, and volume to where you are right now with your training. And we'll talk about how to do that. Something I also see, and we talked about this a bit offline, is that for a lot of runners who are coming from a, a plate, they've found running or they're taking their running more seriously, but in their previous athletic life, they spent a lot of time doing very like, you know, high intensity or, you know, high explosive, like box jumps, spent a lot of time in the gym. They're doing a lot of these, like lots of jumping, lots of burpees, because that's how they were introduced to, or fell into the pattern of really enjoying fitness. Um, and that again, talking about the seasonality and how much of your time you're spending different training zones, you know, you don't sounds like the average endurance runner doesn't need to be doing like, you know, box jumps and burpees five days a week. <laughs> um, yeah. Not saying the fact that it's just a lot of, of intense activity. Um, more is not always better in this situation. Yeah, exactly. So we need to think about where are the rules of the gym written from, right? Because they come from a lot of different places. Like, why are you doing um, a Bulgarian split squat? Well, that actually probably came because the Bulgarian split squat's a unstable exercise that's very specific to, to the catch position of a jerk. So Olympic lifters 40 years ago wanted to get more stable in how they catch an Olympic lifting movement over their head. So they use that exercise. But it just happened to get carried on 40 years to now to your Instagram feed. And then you decided that that's important for you to do, it, which it may or may not be, right? Like, But these same rules of the gym are written by different people at different time periods. Similarly, the rules of muscle building, where you can only train a muscle really hard once or twice a week. Um, because that's how we optimally do bodybuilding. That doesn't necessarily apply to you as a runner, right? Because you may actually benefit from a lower threshold stimulus daily or every other day, um, which is not optimal for building big biceps, but it may be optimal for building the lateral hip musculature that you need for a more stable running position and to be able to handle the mileage that you have next month on your program. So it just it just comes back to okay where were the rules of the gym written from and make sure that we're not you know we're not doing orange theory classes with box jumps for 3 minutes because it, those rules were written around theoretical fat loss you know or something like that you know where are those rules coming from you need to make rules that are appropriate for you I love that. I've never heard it put put that way, and it's so it's so uh, that's so cr true, correct. Um, all right. So thinking about plyometrics, and we talked about you talked about muscles, you talked about tendons, you talked about force generation, um, and the stretch shortening cycle. Let's dive in a little bit into that a little bit more, and what is happening in our body when we are going through a, when we're running, and then when we're doing a plyometric movement. Sure. So. Let's think about the stretch shortening cycle on a continuum again. And we actually kind of 
in the research defined as two ways as the slow stretch shortening cycle and the fast stretch shortening cycle and that's dependent on ground contact time so with your foot in contact with the ground for less than a quarter of a second we would call that fast stretch shortening cycle and some examples of very fast stretch shortening cycle movements would be like um, band assisted jumps where you're decreasing your body weight and you're just boom 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 jumping really quickly with really short ground contact time um, you know, other examples of that would be like a, a skip or a, you know, a pogo hop or something like that. Um, whereas on the very other end of the spectrum, we could have really long ground contract, uh, ground contact time plyometrics. And those could be things like our depth jumps or things like a weighted jump or um, just something that involves more, more joint excursion, meaning like deeper knee bending and more range of motion, more ground contact time. It's a bit more forceful. Most people need some combination of both. If you are the sprinter and you're really trying to focus on like the maximal rate of force production that you can produce for a short period of time, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, you might spend a bit more time on those really short, quick ground contact times and um, being really explosive. Now, okay, where does a endurance runner fit in to this? Uh, and there's actually a case to be made for working at different levels of this, uh, working at different ground contact times across the spectrum at different times of the year. If you're just getting into plyometrics, where should you start? Well, good places to start are something like rhythmic skipping movements. And this is just going to get your body essentially introduced to stretching and shortening at a slightly different um, rate than we do with running. Now, we don't want to be drastically different than running because our body is accommodated to running. And if we stay reasonably close to that, we're going to get adaptations that are fairly specific to helping us run. So if we run at say 160, 170 beats per minute as a tempo, we can start with kind of that type of tempo and just doing pogo hops or doing skips where we're hopping our feet, like right foot forward, left, right, left. Um, there's, if you just look up rhythmic uh, plyometrics, there's a ton of these that are like kind of these lower, um, lower intensity, good for starting out plyometrics. These are also good if you're coming back from an injury to get back into um, running. Now, off season, you may uh, see, or throughout the year, you may find a different time period where you want to introduce some more intense plyometrics as well. Again, it's just about like dialing up or dialing back based on your need at any given time. So for runners who are already including things like A skips and B skips mm. and high knees into their pre-run warmup, for example, <clears throat> Those are rhythmic plyometrics. Yeah. Like, so, spoiler alert, you're already probably doing them. You just may not have called them, quote unquote, plyometrics because they're called drills or pre-run warm-up exercises. Yeah, exactly. And, and you may just, uh, like, all you may need is to take the ones that you're doing and, and just get off the ground 10% higher um, to make that a little bit more explosive. Or, you know, the adjustments that you need might need to make are, are probably smaller than you need you, than you might think. Like you don't need to drastically overhaul your training and do tons of different box jumps necessarily. Like you might just need a slight uh, change to what you're doing to really optimize your routine. And I think then the question is, well, why would I include them at all? Like, what's the benefit? What? Why should I be concerned about generating force and and working on these types of movements? Yeah. So this is this is an interesting question, and I think the way that we want to go about this is um, when you're trying to add anything to your training, you want to think, is this actually going to get the result that I want? And for example, we know that overall strength training 
tends to be beneficial for runners and tends to reduce injury risk, although actually not universally and not in all cases. So specifically, if you're a runner with a very high volume and you're in season right now, you actually, the, the best strength training protocol for you may be no strength training, which is interesting because you just like naturally um, runners and people in general are like, the more the better, right? Like if I just do more, um, I will get a better result. But we actually see, especially in the case of when hormones aren't well regulated, um, for example, in that case, if we if we get a group of individuals who don't have good hormone regulation, aren't getting good sleep, and we add a stimulus of strength training or add a stimulus of plyometric training to their current training, we can actually see a negative result from that addition, right? And, and increased injury risk. So it's important to think about seasonality and think about the training environment that you're in right now and if something additional will or will not be beneficial for you. So the first thing is like find the time period of, of the year and the, the right um, season of training to where you can handle this additional training stress and then, okay, then we can decide what training stress we want to add. Yeah, and if there are so many people I've talked to who are like, oh, I'm about to head into my peak weeks for marathon training. Should I should I start strength training now? It's like, no, <laughs> you should have started that six months ago, right? That ship is so far sailed, you can't even see it on the horizon anymore. Um, and I, actually, I, I, I just want to point out kind of what you said, the broader point of not mm-hmm. only, you know, obviously that I think the time and the place for adding or, or reducing specific types of training in your total training load, but that you know, one of our goals as athletes should ideally be to keep ourselves in a place where we can continue to include the types of training that is going to be are going to be most beneficial from us when we need them. As in, like, please don't let yourself go into a place where you are dysregulated, not sleeping, not eating enough. Right? That's gonna like not, none of that's gonna help. Like, if you if you are unable to add specific things to your training because you simply aren't recovering properly, like that's that's not a good place to be, broadly speaking. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the principles, like if we want to maximize performance and reduce injury risk, the first thing that I always look at is like workload management. Like how consistent is your training? And how consistent is your training week to week? Meaning like, are you hitting a similar mileage each week in terms of your runs? And is the strength or plyometric or other training stimulus or either even other life stress, is that consistent week to week? Because we don't want to have these giant fluctuations in our workload, um, or it's just not ideal for performance and injury risk. Exactly. So something I want to ask about is uh, our muscle fibers and and force generation. Um, I think for well, actually, let's you just throw. I'm going to throw it back at you and say let's kind of start with the super basics. I think for a lot of people who are in the endurance space, think like ah, I just got. I'm all endurance fibers, and then that's a that's not exactly that's not how the body works. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're talking about things like force generation and where the power is being generated in a plyometric versus a like low and slow endurance type activity, mm-hmm. you know why why is it important for endurance runners to include plyometrics because of what's happening in our bodies when we run these long distances? Okay. Yeah, let's let's take this two different ways. So we'll talk about muscle fibers first, and then we'll talk about tendon response, because I think those both kind of play in. In we we also we often look at this as the muscle tendon unit. So how the muscle and tendon interacts to produce force, to produce our you know running gait. So let's look at both. 
From a muscle fiber perspective, we have both slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers. Now, our slow twitch fibers have way more ability to use oxygen. And um, this allows them to contract many, many times without getting fatigued. But on the downside, uh, they don't produce that much power. So if we need, to, we need a kick or if we need um, you know, extra force, we don't really get that from our slow twitch fibers. We have to go into our faster twitch muscle fibers. So our fast twitch fibers, the benefit here is they're a bit larger. Um, they do produce more force and power, but they fatigue fairly quickly. Um, now, we're going to always use a combination of both. And if we look at the calf muscle as an example, um, you may see your calf muscle and, and you actually have two two primary calf muscles there. The one that you can kind of see on the outside is your gastrocnemius muscle. And that gastrocnemius muscle is more of a fast twitch muscle. Um, that, that muscle uh, may have upwards of 80% fast twitch fibers, even if you're slow and you define yourself as slow. Like I would, I would kind of consider myself overall like more of a slow twitch person. Uh, <laughs> Like I think people have called me first gear before because I'm like really good at first gear, but like in terms of second gear, third gear, not quite as good there. But nevertheless, my calf muscle probably still has 75% or more fast twitch muscle fibers because that's just the type of that muscle specifically. The soleus muscle for everyone has a greater percentage of slow twitch fibers than the gastrocnemius. Now there's other muscle groups like the quadriceps where there's actually a huge genetic variability to that. Um, so that, that's largely based on training. So while the fiber type uh, may change a little bit in your calf, really the quads, it, it, could, it could shift very drastically over time from, fast, uh, from being largely more fast twitch or more slow twitch, um, again, based on training and genetics. So it's a combination of those two things. Now, let's get into tendons also. <laughs> so when we, when we do training, um, slower, aerobic training that's very cyclical has a very specific demand on the body. It is very good for upregulating our aerobic enzymes and making our heart bigger and helping us deliver more blood, like pump more blood through the body, which gets more oxygen to our muscles, which helps us do all these low level contractions of largely slow twitch fibers many, many times without getting tired. So we could do a 5k, a 10k, a half marathon, you know, whatever. But that type of training stimulus is, is very bad for increasing bone mineral density, for improving tendon stiffness, for improving um, rate of force production, for improving um, a lot of the neuromuscular aspects of how our muscles um, activate. So if we exclusively do endurance training, we're kind of leaving a lot of adaptations on the table. We're not going to necessarily develop our uh, tendon or tendon complex well enough because these cyclical low loads of running or cycling or endurance activities um, are stretching, shortening, stretching, shortening our, our tendons, but a very specific rate and speed. And it's not really putting a very high strain on the tendon to actually make that tendon stronger and stiffer. So from a tendon perspective, specifically, we want to find times throughout the year where we can load that tendon with very high loads um, whether that's just heavy calf raises or um, split squats with enough weight in your hand or other exercises that load our tendons very heavy so we can actually see those beneficial tendon adaptations um, so that way we can handle more running and more endurance training. So those go hand in hand. So it's just always important to remember 
that we have a specific set of adaptations associated with endurance training. And it's great to go all in on that for certain times of the year, but throughout the year, you need to make sure you're finding enough time to train all the other important things. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I mean, obviously you knew about the, the variability of muscle fiber, you know, composition and mm-hmm. genetic variability and the trainable aspect of some of them, but that specific muscles themselves are more predisposed to be one or the other, or, you know, a certain combination. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes sense, right? I mean, just thinking about it, like, yeah, actually that makes sense that that would be the case. Mm-hmm. So thinking about thinking about the way that, uh, what are I have like 18 questions that oh, I wanna ask. That's um, about, one at a time. That was just so cool. <laughs> one at a time. Yeah, so talking about, you know, the ways that we, we produce force, and I think bringing it back to, to the running aspect is that when most people we talk about, you know, becoming better runners, mm-hmm. For the average person, that's going to mean becoming an overall faster runner. Now, not for everybody. I understand that people listen to this podcast. Not every, not all of your goals involve becoming quote unquote faster. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But in general, we talk about I want to become a better runner. We're talking about I want to be able to run faster for a specific distance or for a specific time. And that has to do, I think, with a lot of the adaptations you referenced in combination with each other, mm-hmm. that we are becoming more aerobically robust and we have this other layer of adaptations that are really only going to be uh, realized with this higher level, higher intensity, higher power and force generated um, training that we have to include in our training if we really wanna get to that next level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I, I actually want to take this in an interesting way because I have a cool story about this. Okay, so um, last year I ran a half marathon in Las Vegas down the Las Vegas Strip. It was really cool. You I was there night. that day. I also ran that oh, race. Did you really? Okay, cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so this is a cool story. You'll you'll actually relate to this then. Cool. So I think I got like three hundred and. 80th or something like that out of 16,000 runners and I was like excited but I'm like what what are the 300 people you know ahead of me how did they train right and then now um 11 10 months later uh comes into our clinic the one of the girls the girl who actually won first place in the race um her name's Ellie and she's training with another girl Christina and they're just very elite runners and I'm like what the heck how is what does their training look like and it's interesting because um, their training is going to be different from mine in, in a number of different ways. I think the, the primary difference is just mileage per week. Uh, I think they were running up to around 70 miles per week leading into the race, um, whereas I was probably running around 25 or 30 at the most. Um, but then also, like, they're they're really on top of the supportive training, right? The, the training that supports their running. So, for example, they're doing plyometrics in their training, and they've been doing this for a years now so they're actually accommodated to the point that they can do some plyometrics even leading up to a race and they're not going to break down because um, we can talk about capacity here capacity is essentially your ability to handle training volume and you can only handle maybe five or ten percent more than what you're doing right now but that just keeps going up if you just keep training consistently five or ten percent more than then a couple months later five or ten percent more than that five or ten percent more than that so it's really important that we don't just like copy someone else's training right now but it's fascinating at least to me to think about like where can we go with this if we just keep keep getting uh, building our capacity and building our tissue tolerance up to a really elite level so um to support the goal of running 
we can implement things like strength training and resistance training to increase running economy. And that's really one of the primary, that's really the, one of the primary adaptations here. Um, economy is essentially how efficiently we're running. So the more efficiently we can create a spring, for example, out of the Achilles tendon, the more efficiently we can run. So just to give like a very concrete example, like one of the drills they're doing is like you essentially you step on a box and you step backwards and then your, your forefoot contacts the ground and you quickly stretch your Achilles tendon and then you push back up on the box. And um, it's actually a really interesting exercise and it's something that you'd, you'd want to build up to. Like you might start with like pogo hops or something like that. But like over time and as you get closer to your race, you can get really specific with these plyometrics where they're pretty close to um, the mechanics and the, the biomechanics of running. Um, so that the adaptations you're getting from them are really going to dial in that running economy to help you be a, you know, a more efficient runner. That's very cool. Right? <laughs> it's always nice to come across, you know, to do your own thing and, and then to come across with like somebody else that you know of and you're like, you get a peek behind the curtain that they're training. And I agree with you with the interesting thing that I find with the elite runners that I talk to is one, the biggest difference between them and us is aside from the natural talent is the volume of training that they can handle mm -hmm. week over week, like as just a, as a matter of course. And two, how much other stuff they do to like you said to support their running so it's not i mean i think for most of us if we remember to do our pre-run warm-up it's a good day you know then we get out and do our miles and maybe we remember to do you know whatever our, our after run is and once or twice we're really you know really trying to make time to get to the gym doesn't always happen right the average runner with a normal busy life mm -hmm. but elite runners in the time that they dedicate to their sport mostly because they have it is pre-run warm-up, drills, their run, you know, specific PT exercises, different kind of activation movements, they're doing plyo, they're doing really specific strength training. Like, it's a lot, it's not just running. It is so much more than just the running for what they're doing in their sport. Yeah, and I will say they're, they're also like not perfect. So if you're thinking like, if you have like this idea that like, these uh, elite runners are just these like perfect like robots of running, you're not perfect, they're just like very consistent and that's, for a very long period of time and uh, there's obviously other aspects to it as well but you know they're real people too <laughs> you know i don't know yeah right no. i just think nobody's perfect to, yeah i think it's just think it's interesting to see that and like think about like okay what are some aspects of that that i can actually either aspire to with my own training or incorporate right now or, or build up to I wanted to talk about this idea of uh, muscle stiffness or, or tendon stiffness, mm. kind of, you know, harnessing the power of, um, of you know, energy return, right? Mm -hmm. um, because obviously, you know, working with an athletic population, a lot of people are really obsessed with, I need to stretch for all of these reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Oh, flexibility is super important. And in this context of what we're trying to do, we're actually encouraging a specific amount of muscle tension and stiffness so that we can harness the power of the energy we're creating and return it so that we can jump from foot to foot for however many miles we choose to do that for. Yeah, I will say like the high level runners that I've worked with and seen don't do a lot of static stretching and I don't prescribe a lot of static stretching to fix very many things for even the recreational runners that I work with. And the reason is just that static stretching can address a specific mobility deficit, um, but usually even if there is a specific mobility deficit, there's more of a movement-based strategy that we can get to obtain that. Let's go back to the tendon. So let's just say we want to 
optimize the adaptations of our tendons so that our Achilles tendon is giving us the most whenever it comes to our race. Like it's, it's doing the most for us. We need to train two different things. We need to train the stiffness of the tendon and the elasticity of the tendon. And these are kind of different. So the elasticity is the ability of a tendon to stretch and then reform to its shape. That is more preferentially trained with plyometric exercises. Meaning that when we're doing these exercises like our hops and our jumps and our skips, we're training the tendon to stretch shorten, stretch shorten with the stretch shortening cycle. And we're training that at slightly different loads, slightly different rates of stretch than running um, to give us a, a window or a, a broader capacity to handle running. Now, that's elasticity. We can also train tendon stiffness, and that's more preferentially trained with heavy resistance. Um, we actually see that there's probably not much of a difference between doing isometrics versus doing very slow controlled repetitions. Both of those are highly effective. So whether you want to do slow and controlled repetitions with a weight, um, let's use the Achilles as an example because that's really a main tendon that's, get, that's helping with our running economy. We can train the Achilles by doing very heavy calf raises. Um, and, and we do want to build up to this. But it's actually not, people think that heavy calf raises are dangerous. It's actually not dangerous. It's like um, most often injuries are from uh, like it's training, vo training volume mismanagement or uh, like sprinting after not training for a while or, or other things. Just loading a muscle heavy is not inherently dangerous. So to get the adaptation of uh, tendon stiffness, so that way our Achilles tendon can handle load and uh, transmit force into the ground effectively, we wanna be doing some amount of heavy training. That could be heavy calf raises. If you're doing those, um, the way I like to do it is hold on to a wall or to a rail or something like that with one hand, and then um, either on the edge of a step or you know something that elevates your um, heel so you could do full range of motion at the ankle, and then hold a kettlebell or a dumbbell in the other hand. So you want to hold on for stability because we want to either train strength or stability. Both of them are important. You should also do stability exercises, but specifically for training the tendon to be more stiff and transmit load and force better into the ground, we want to do a heavy controlled calf raise. If you could do 15 reps, it's not heavy enough. You need to get the next heavier weight. If you can do 10 reps, borderline, that's probably not heavy enough. We really want to, I, I like to go for something like five repetitions, five to eight repetitions uh, for a few sets here. Each, each side, um, try to get as full range of motion as you can. If you, you would know you're getting full range of motion because of the ankle, your ankle kind of moves a little bit out to the side at the very top of a calf raise. It, if you look at someone doing a calf raise from behind or if you feel yourself at the doing a calf raise, you'll feel it. As you get to the very top of the range of motion, your ankle kind of moves out a little bit to the side. That's it. And then you go back down. Um, and then... Um, as long as you can handle it, you could do a little bit of a stretch at the bottom and then all the way back up. If you're having like insertional Achilles pain or something like that, then we don't want to really push that stretch at the bottom. But for most people who are healthy and they're just looking to add this into their training to build running economy and to build these tendon properties, they could do those heavy full range of motion repetitions or heavy isometrics, um, 10 to 20 second holds if you're going to do an isometric. And if it's an isometric, even heavier really heavy so you can really put a lot of force through that muscle and a lot of strain through that tendon to get these beneficial adaptations. I think for a lot of people when they hear heavy lifting there's a, a big uh, 
a, a big kind of like not just like a mental block of like you mm-hmm. want me to pick up how much weight you know um and notwithstanding kind of barriers to entry and this kind of stuff and nobody has a home gym nobody has access to a gym but to think like yes you want to pick up something that is quite heavy and do only a couple reps right because as, as endurance folks and and the messaging around certain types of fitness again oh more is better or you should do a hundred reps you should do a thousand if you can't you know that this is we are asking for a, an entirely different focus for a very specific reason that you said five six seven like and that's it you should be done after that after that set um that's a really big mindset shift for how a lot of people approach that type of work yeah, I, th- I think it's important to uh, think about training specificity is one thing, um, but we want to be careful that we're not just repeating running in the form of with weights. Like we don't want like our tendons, for example, have to go through all these cyclical loads if you're running doing thousands of these low level repetitions. So we probably don't need to get into training and do bunches of more low repeti- low load uh, cyclical repetitions. Now there's there's some amount of that that you can do to be sport specific and to, um, you know, replicate training, but with a slightly higher load, slightly less load, slightly more force, slightly less force. For example, like the pogo hops and the things that we talked about. But we can't rely only on those because we're going to miss all of the potential adaptations that we get from heavy resistance training. And again, if we're looking at like what these really high level runners are doing or just runners who are able to stay healthy year after year, they're able to handle heavy loads for um, you know, single leg exercises, being stable on one leg for marches and carries and things like that as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a good set of adaptations associated with those heavy loads. And um, it doesn't mean you need to do bench press with heavy loads because that's probably not gonna help with your running necessarily. Um, probably could like once a week and it wouldn't hurt you but like um especially with specific movements like marches and those calf raises and even like something that loads the knee joint that's really those heavy loads are really going to help you become more robust and build capacity for your ability to run you mentioned kind of the adaptation timeline for some Mm -hmm. of these things and my question is you know how how long does it take for a tendon to adapt? What are we looking at uh, when it comes to going through a process of, you know, developing elasticity um, or uh, stiffness? What was the other one? Stiffness. Stiffness. Yeah. In our tendons. Okay, I'm a, I'm really glad you asked that question because that's a really great question, and we're gonna think about this kind of two different ways. We're gonna think about this acutely, like how would how would you structure like a training week, and then we'll think about it more chronically, like how would you structure overall training so we when we're doing very heavy loads we we know we can run we can run every day honestly like if you could as long as your volume is appropriate for the week you can handle running like one day and running the next day and running the next day because those are low cyclical loads um of course there's reasons to take rest days but i'm just saying that you can run and then run again 24 hours later that's not a problem Whenever it comes to very heavy loads, I generally like to do every other day. So for the things like the heavy, slow, controlled calf raises or heavy calf raise isometrics that we were talking about, generally I would do those every other day because we tend to see about a 36-hour timeline before we hit what's called net positive collagen synthesis, meaning that the collagen or the tendon growth, um, we have like a, a time period where we did 
necessary stress and damage to that tendon at a microscopic level, we need to give it time to heal and then we need to um, train it again and consistently enough that we're making progress over time. So I generally like every other day for that. Um, but there are certain things like um, your pogo hops and your um, lower level plyometrics that you could actually do every day or before each run. And um, as long as you're not going crazy with them and doing like tons of repetitions and your overall weekly volume is appropriate, you don't actually need like a two day time period for that, that type of exercise. So I see it both ways. And then in terms of um, how do we use this training annually or to support different seasons of training, um, that's another question that we can kind of get into here. I would say it's hard because like everyone's going to be different. Like some people are going to have like their summer where they like run and they compete and then their winter where they go kind of do something else or like don't train as hard. And in that case, um, in the winter when you're not doing very much, you can actually, or you're not running very much, you can actually probably handle a ton of strength training and plyometric training. Other people are going to be trying to train year round and they're going to be racing you know, 18 times in over the 11 different months. And it's going to be really hard to find a time to train. I would say like, if you're a master's athlete, or if you're a youth athlete, it's really important to find time for resistance training. Truly, though, like our 20 to 25 year old athletes can get away with like running a lot and not doing a lot of this supportive training. But we just see that with youth level athletes, um, for example, 12 to 18 year olds, that's a key window for building bone mineral density. And plyometrics and heavy resistance exercises can set the foundation of really good bone mineral density so that way you don't run into stress fractures whenever 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you're really trying to handle really high training loads. And it's, it's, you can, you kind of can still improve bone mineral density a little bit after you're turning 20, but there's a really, really important window for youth athletes and especially middle school and high school cross country runners. I've literally emailed high school cross country runners research articles about bone mineral density because it's that important that you need to be training with heavy loads and, and stimulating bone mineral density at a young age. Similarly, um, masters athletes, there are a lot of the ones that are gonna come to a you know, running coach like yourself or a clinician um, in order to um, address specific deficits and injury concerns and nagging things. Um, and, and we generally see that uh, like introducing appropriate plyometrics and resistance exercise to them um, is more important and takes up more of their overall training year. So again, the answer is different for everybody, but hopefully that sets some context. And I think it's really hard for people, you kind of referenced the runner who likes to race year round or the minimum is basically in race prep for most of the year, right? Maybe they're mm -hmm. a twice a marathon, two marathons a year kind of person. Maybe they're a three marathon a year kind of person, which mm -hmm. is kind of the maximum I'd really suggest uh, for most people. Um, or they just go through these, what I call, you know, adult seasons of training where they have a, they're just racing a bunch of kind of low stakes races, but like all the time, yeah. <laughs> right? And that's a very stressful place for your body to be in. And there's a reason that people like yourself with a lot of credentials and then people like myself who have fewer credentials, but who listen a lot are always talking about the importance of planning out your year, periodizing your training, making sure that you are doing the appropriate things at the appropriate time and you give yourself periods of less and periods of more. Like that's for a reason because mm -hmm. um, you can't do all the things all the time year round. Yeah, that's that's really, really important for runners to remember. It's like, um, 
what's optimal for you is probably only five to 10% different than what you did last week, right? Like you could think about what's optimal for you a year from now or six months from now. And that's good to have like a training goals and a training calendar and seasonality to your training. But in terms of what you need to do next week, it's not that much different than what you did this week. You just need to make these small um, changes up towards where you're going to. So let's talk about adding plyometrics to your training. Um, if you are, you know, either not doing anything that looks like plyometrics, or if you occasionally put in a couple skips into your pre-run warmup, because um, adding a very high volume of plyometrics overnight or going kind of all in on really um, big plyometric exercises is a really risky proposition. Yeah, like what what you're basically working against is is like the over overuse type injuries such as like a tendinopathy and this the most common cause of a, a tendinopathy is just workload mismanagement meaning you did too much too soon um so that's what we don't want to do so how do we how do we actually avoid that um again this this all comes back to just changing your training by five to ten percent per week to support your overall training goals so where can you start if you're just at zero that let, let's talk about that um the if you're if you're at zero from a plyometric and resistance training standpoint, you're probably going to get the most benefit in the shortest amount of time from I would say first adding few repetitions, so three sets, five reps of a heavy slow resistance exercise like a calf raise or a split squat, two to three times a week. That's like that's like a really good place to start, and it actually to some extent would help you prepare for plyometrics as well. From a plyometric standpoint, where should you start there? Again, this is going to be different for everybody because I'm, you know, if you're a master's athlete and you're listening to this and you haven't done this in a really long time, your ability to handle your, your starting volume may be fairly low, but that doesn't mean that you can't start somewhere and build up. But that may be just like, honestly, 10 jumps every other day or something like that. Like jump as high as you can 10 times every other day. And that's like a good starting point. And then um, we can get more specific in, in terms of, okay, well, once we've done that for a week or two, our body's used to doing some amount of jumping. Now let's do 10 pogo hops and then 10 explosive jumps. And then let's add, um, you know, a, something, something else that's like a, um, you know, a, like a, maybe like a split one where you're kind of jumping like back and forth or doing something offset or even like a single leg plyometric, like a single leg jump or a single leg hop. But again, this needs to come in stages over time. So the individual exercises are, there's so many options, um, which can be overwhelming, I understand. But it really just, it does really come down to workload management, meaning just adding a little bit at a time. Um, check your symptoms. So for, especially for plyometric exercises, 24 hours later, there shouldn't be no like additional like fatigue or soreness or um, pain associated with that. If you're noticing that, then you may have added too much too soon. Dial it back, right? So use your own body um, as a a good uh, response here to to t tell you if if you're what you're doing is too much or not enough. And I'd like to point out that all of the exercises that you just mentioned were just out of normal jumping, like on a flat surface jumping mm -hmm. style exercises. There were no like. Instagram worthy box jumps or like mm -hmm. anything that, you know, th th those things are flashy and they look cool on social media, 
but that is pretty advanced level stuff. And if you go from no plyometrics to trying to do a whole bunch of box jumps or like the, you know, jumping down and then immediately springing back up, like you're, I'm going to say you're not, you're not going to hurt yourself. You are highly likely to uh, overload your yeah, well, body. Yeah. It's, it's just important to remember, like you can adapt to a, any number of things like you you could do depth jumps they're not like an inherently dangerous exercise it's just that it's a big gap between where you are now and the demands of that exercise so you want to have a small gap between like where you're at now and the demands of the exercise you're doing so you want to start with the pogo hop or just you know a vertical jump and then landing you know a smooth soft landing reset do it again right um you know and then over time you could build up to those more intense exercises yeah, it's not to say that like, if you want it, if that's your goal, like if you want to be able to do that, that's that's great. You just got to get there. Yeah. You know, and it's going to take some time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, it's just like, um, you know, those workout classes where you have people like a whole group of people, like 20 people coming in and then they're all doing the same, um, you know, explosive exercises. The, the ones that have been there for like six months and they're just like, you know, wearing the shirts and they got the bands and they got, you know, like they're all in, they're probably fine because they've been accommodated to that for a long enough time that they're, the, the demand of the exercise isn't significantly higher than what they're used to. Whereas the person who's introducing themselves back to exercise with that type of routine, again, demands way higher than their current capacity. That's where you get into like a dicey area. That could be, you know, intimidating in those situations where you're with a bunch of people and everybody else is doing this thing and you're thinking to yourself, do I not want, do I not feel comfortable doing this exercise because I'm being a wimp or because I genuinely shouldn't do it for my body? And obviously I think there are huge benefits to, you know, being in a group environment in a fit in, in for fitness. And, um, but there can be some drawbacks in certain situations too. Like not everybody should do everything that the group is doing. Yeah. So it's just, it's just about like finding that line and like figuring out what's optimal for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to reiterate your point. It sounds like heavy lifting benefits your plyometric ability as well. Like that's where you, you didn't stay like, oh, if you're new to plyometrics, start with these jumps. You said, if you're new to plyometrics, start with heavy resistance training. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like you kind of, you don't like they're, they are kind of different. So like, I wouldn't say like one's like a prerequisite for the other. We previously actually thought that like maybe like 10 or 15 years ago that you needed to do resistance for so long and build up so much strength and then you could start plyometrics. It's like you could start both, but just know that um, there's just so many positive beneficial adaptations from such a low volume of of resistance exercises. That's a really good place to start. And it does set like a foundation for some capacity. And then you could start plyometrics alongside that. um, But again, just dial the intensity appropriately enough. And I know this is going to be hugely dependent on the individual athlete, but for runners who are concerned about joint health, Mm. about that much jumping, you know, with uh, how, what's it going to do to my knees? What's it going to do to my joints? Um, You know, what, what do you have to say about plyometrics and joint health? Yeah. So there's, there's been actually a lot of research on this and I would say like the overall takeaway that a normal person should kind of see from this is that you, as long as you're dialing appropriately to an intensity that you can handle, um, the injury risk associated with plyometrics is not um, significantly greater than running or sport training or uh, any of these other activities. The 
where we run into issues is again when we're not uh, I probably sound like a broken record but when we're not matching the current capacity to the demands of the activity in terms of chronically it works very similarly we can adapt to just like how um, ultra runners can adapt to very high mileage and they don't see additional uh, like significantly additional pain symptoms or um, breakdown um, overall as a whole um, certainly individuals may but like we have to think about like what are what is what is the overall training stimulus causing for people and we don't see that like running is causing um, pain in old age or like breakdown and um, things like that 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 we have that has been like uh, hypothesized or like some people will say yeah no, that's and that's and it, again, everybody's a little bit different, right? There may be some people, you know, who come in with pre-existing history of whatever's they've, you know, life has thrown at them for their bodies. Um, but yeah, no, it's always kind of my rebuttal, like, oh, running's bad for your knees. I'm like, no, it's not <laughs> actually, I mean, actually, any, actually. Any stimulus that's within your window of adaptability is actually generally positive and going to have a positive impact on the health of your tendons and ligaments and joints. So it sounds like kind of the, the big takeaway, if I'm going to summarize our conversation and somebody's, you know, basically skipped all the way to the end and they want the, the fine points. Sure. Um, it's that, you know, plyometrics are really an excellent arsenal, a tool in our arsenal of training tools for endurance runners, but that when in doubt, do less, not more because uh, you're not quite, especially when you're new, because you may not be sure how much you can currently handle. Although over time with appropriate um, uh, titration of your training load, you then can learn to handle much greater volumes of this plyometric style training. Yeah, I mean, I think it works very similarly to um, <laughs> like how most things work. It's like you could you can probably do less this week than you think, but more in three months than you think. Like we, we very, often as people like overestimate, I get to get all this stuff done this week. And then like you get to the end of the week, and you're like, man, I still have a lot to do. But um, then you look back over the like a month or two and you're like, man, I got a lot more done over this time period um, than I maybe expected that I could over a longer time period. So if you're listening to this, there's, don't worry too much about what you can do this week. Just find an appropriate starting volume and 5% adds up very quickly. An extra five. Something else that I, yeah, it does. And same, same thing with running too. I mean, like I, when I started running, I literally couldn't run a mile. Mm -hmm. Right. And now I've run five marathons. Like it happens. (laughs) Just stay consistent. Something else I wanted to ask now that I've thought about it. So we talked about, you know, different ways that your plyometrics can be added into your training. You know, for somebody who's running, let's say five days a week, um, is this something plyometrics they should do? I think it obviously depends. Mm-hmm. Pre-run, post-run, can they do plyometrics on a non-running day? Like what is the average runner's schedule going to look like for that kind of thing? Yeah, so plyometrics are typically most effective when you're very fresh. Um, I generally would recommend doing them. I, you know, Ideally, it would be separated from training by three hours or more. If we are really trying to like peak performance and adaptations like you might do your run in the morning and then um in the afternoon or evening then you might do your 20 minute strength and plyometric routine and that's reasonable for some runners maybe if you have a weight at home that you can hold and you can do your calf raises and you can do your your couple sets of jumps and 
that schedule works out for you. But I know a lot of people are just like, there's one time that I exercise. Like I, mentally I can get around it. I exercise from 6.30 to 7.45 a.m. every morning. And I'm like, okay, adherence is the most important thing. So what's optimal is not as important as what you can actually adhere to. So in that case, um, I would do your plyometrics first. Keep the volume low enough that it's appropriate and it's not going to fatigue you for your run. But honestly, plyometrics are not very fatiguing. Like doing, um, doing like high volume of like walking lunges, even with like just your body weight or very little weight. If you go do 40 walking lunges, you'll be way, way, way more sore than if you do 40 jumps. And it's not even close. Just because there's an eccentric or like a lengthening component to like walking lunges or like other full range of motion strength exercises like that. And if we're doing a high volume of strength exercises, that's where we start to see interference with run performance and more fatigue. But explosive movements, we see very little fatigue. So it's actually not a huge concern. Um, the only real concern is tendon capacity and, and doing too much too soon with that. Um, but yeah, like in terms of it affecting your running, it's not a huge interference effect or anything like that. Um, you could do a few repetitions, um, right before your workout. And is this something that you would want to warm up for? I don't just walk into the gym and just start jumping. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like you would usually do like a five minute walk would be good. Um, for example, like five minute walk and then you could do, uh, your 10 pogo hops and you could do your 10 explosive jumps. And then if you have any other dynamic warm ups that you want to do and then run. Sounds good to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. This was so cool. I, we got to talk about plyometrics for almost an hour. And, uh, and I, I know that if, like I said, if those three people reached out to about plyometrics to me specifically, I know that there are a bunch of people who had questions about this and if, how, when, what type of plyometrics belong in training for endurance runners, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Um, if people aren't following you, they totally should, but tell us, uh, tell us, what you can offer people and what kind of education and services you provide. Uh, yeah, sure. So if people are looking for more information on plyometrics, I've done a number of episodes actually on my podcast as well. Um, I do just some solo episodes where I'll break that, where I'll break down like a specific topic in detail, like deep dive on plyometrics or deep dive on, um, you know, heavy resistance exercises for runners or something like that. And we'll cover examples and physiology and a lot of detailed science. So if you're, if you're in it for the science and you want the, the nerdy stuff, um, you can check out the Movement System podcast or the Movement System in, on Instagram. We also put a lot of effort into our YouTube videos. So um, I would just head to the movementsystem.com and search for runners or like running, you know, ones that are related to what you're interested in. If you want to um, learn about a specific topic that we've talked about, like the stretch shortening cycle, I have a video who that breaks that down and gives you like visual examples of what that actually looks like. Um, so that, that'd be a good place to learn as well. Your content is some of my favorite go-to. I'm like, I know that Matt's probably done something on this and it's always fun. Actually, it was one of your videos on plyometrics. So I was like, I got to have him on. We'll talk about plyometrics. It's going to be great. So nice. Freddie was not following the movement system on, uh, on the channels that you inhabit. You definitely should, cause you are going to learn so much. I promise. Well, Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Like I said. All right. Thanks for having me on. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time.
This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.